Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For thousands of years, the Spartans have captured the imaginations of Westerners. In ancient Greece, the city-state was admired for its military prowess, civic unity, and dedication to leisurely athletic pursuits. Today, we make movies about Spartans and name sports teams after them. When we moderns think of Spartans, we typically think of them simply as fierce warriors. But while the Spartans were indeed fierce warriors, their culture was much more complex. Today on the show, I unpack some of these complexities with historian Paul Ray. Paul is working on a series of books with Yale University Press, which explore both the military and political strategy of the Spartans. We begin our conversation discussing why it's hard for us moderns to truly understand Sparta. We then dig into the history and culture of Spartans, including where they came from, their economic setup and relationship with the Helot population, and the strenuous upbringing of boys that made them fit for battle. We then talk about the mixed government of the Spartans, and we end our conversation discussing how the city-state faded into obscurity and why the Spartans yet live on in modern culture. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Sparta and find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Paul joins me now via clearcast.io. Paul Ray, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So you are a professor of history, political history, and you've written some books. You're working on a series of books about Sparta. So the Spartans, I think, are interesting because they they enjoy a very prominent place in our collective and popular culture. There's movies made about Spartans, books written about Spartans, teams are named after Spartans. So I, I think we feel like we know them well. But in your book, the first one in this series, you quote Winston Churchill, his phrase describing Russia, where and used it for the Spartans, saying they're a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. So do we actually know much less about the Spartans than is commonly thought? Well, it depends on what you mean by the word no. If if you mean, do we have less information about them than about other communities? The answer is we have more information about them than about most communities. The obstacle to our understanding is the way we see the world. We live in a liberal regime. It's, it's a product of a certain kind of political science. And we're used to thinking in terms of, say, the primacy of economics. Uh, are you better off now than you were eight years ago? Being the sort of thing a presidential candidate could say in, in running against someone who is in office. 
but also we think primarily in institutional terms, separation of powers, federalism, and so forth. The ancient Greeks thought in different terms. Uh, and let me give you a, an example of, of how that might be. In the 19th century, we forced Japan to open up. And the Japanese, horrified by our military intervention in Tokyo Harbor, sent the crown prince to the great capitals of Europe. And they invited the European powers to send embassies to Japan. They were looking for support against us. And in England, a conversation, I'm told, took place between a, an English civil servant and one of the attendants of the Japanese crown prince. And the English civil servant asked, what were your instructions? And the Japanese, the attendant to the crown prince said, I don't quite know what you mean, what you mean. And he said, well, we sent an embassy to Japan and our instructions were to find out what do they produce that we might buy? What don't they produce that we might sell to them? What are their defenses like? Do they have navigable rivers and so forth? And the Japanese, uh, the attendant to the crown prince responded, ah, now I see. He said, we were asked to find out what do the English bow down to? Well, we don't, when we think of a political regime or form of government, that's not the first question we ask. But in a way, that's the first question you have to ask in order to understand the Spartans. So when, when, when I talk about the Spartan regime, I'm talking about a whole way of life a set of practices that, that begin with birth and end with death that are set by the Spartan laws and, and by Spartan customs that essentially have the force of law, and not just about the distribution of powers between different magistrates. When you look at it that way, we have a great deal of information about Sparta because Aristotle was interested in this, Plato was interested in this, and Plutarch was interested in this. Xenophon was interested in this. And Plutarch had access to certain writings of Aristotle, uh, the constitution of the Lacedaemonians, that we don't have, and he drew rather heavily on it. So we get a kind of, of comprehensive picture of Sparta if you put together what we're told by Herodotus and Thucydides and Plato and Xenophon, Aristotle and Plutarch. And you can begin to see how the whole way of life works. So that's one obstacle. Another obstacle is we tend to think of a city as urban, but the Greek polis actually was rural in character. There was a town, but the vast majority of the citizens were farmers from the countryside. And that distinguishes, by, by the way, the, the ancient Greek city and ancient Rome from places like Venice and Florence where it's the cittadini who live in the città, in the city, who are citizens, and the contadini who live in the rural district called the contado are not citizens, they're subjects. So the, the, the Greek city is agricultural in character, and that shapes it profoundly. Yeah. So, I mean, I go, so I guess the problem is it's hard to know because it's just, in a way, it's very foreign to us. We tend to think of Sparta or the Greek city-states using what we know about politics or what a city is. And when we do that, there's a mismatch. And so we, you miss the mark a bit. Right. We, we, we read certain 
elements in the makeup of, say, Athens, uh, and we put great emphasis on them because they're familiar to us or there's something like what we know. And then we miss what is alien. Now that, that's a, that's a common phenomenon, you know, and it, 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 it infects, uh, international relations a great deal. We have a tendency to read our own predilections uh, into foreign countries. And the consequence is we very often uh, misinterpret what they're up to because it's so alien to us. We, we don't play, pay much attention to what we would call cultural differences, but what the ancient Greeks called regime differences. So, okay, so another thing that makes it mysterious then too, so we, we have descriptions from ancient historians and ancient philosophers or ancient political scientists like Aristotle of the Spartan way of life. And so because Sparta was really a way of life, right? Like, it, you know, it's not like today where we can look at our government, as you were saying earlier, and see these institutions that define us. Like for Sparta, like government or the regime, it was like, it was internal. Like it was actually something in, like it was baked into the person. And so to really understand it, you have to see it in action or see descriptions of it in action. You can't just look at a, a constitution and get, I mean, you can get some glimpse of it, but you're not going to get the whole picture. That's right. You've got to look at the way of life. Uh, it's as if to understand America, you had to understand Monday night football. Right, right. No, yeah, that makes sense. And But also, were the Spartans secretive in any way? Like, were they very uh, reluctant to allow outsiders into their community? It, they were secretive in two different ways. They were laconic. <laughs> they, they uh, our word comes from from a name for them. Lacones. They were laconic, meaning they prided themselves on the brevity of, of what they said. So you, you, it's like the Vermont farmer who answers every question. Yep. Yep. That was one aspect of it, set of habits. Second aspect of it is they didn't allow foreigners to come to Sparta except with permission. And they didn't often give permission. And they didn't allow their own citizens to travel freely. Once again, you had to have permission, and they didn't give permission for young people to leave Lacedaemon. So they were a mystery even in their own time. And sometimes it was hard to get information. Uh, Thucydides in one passage talks about the krypton tes politeias, the, the secretiveness of the regime. And for example, he, he was trying to figure out how many soldiers they put in the field. And it's hard to get a fix on it for him. And he's actually spent time at Sparta. So they, they're, they're terse. They're brief in what they say. They're secretive. And then they have institutions that make it hard to, for you to get access to them. Okay, well, let's talk. We'll, we'll get into more of the, these institutions here in a bit. But let's talk about the origins of the Spartans. They settled in an area, but they're not originally from there. Where did the Spartans come from? And why did they settle in this one part of Greece? Well, we, we, can, only, we can only speculate on the basis of legend. They seem to come from northern Greece from the other side of the Corinthian Gulf. They, there is a legend that they crossed the Corinthian Gulf on rafts, which it's quite possible to do. There's one place where there's only a mile across. 
and they they see themselves as invaders. Now, ordinarily, that would be something you wouldn't say about yourself, that you are alien to the place, because it undercuts your claim to be the legitimate landholders there. So the Athenians, for example, insist that they're born from the earth. That is to say that they sprung up from the territory. Their blood and the soil are one and the same. The Spartans make a different claim about themselves, and it's probably true because it's to their disadvantage. They counter the the uh, the attack on them that would be made that they were interlopers, didn't belong there, claiming that they are the followers of the true owners of the land who are the descendants of the hero Heracles, who was a prince from the northern Peloponnesus, who is said to have earned by his labors a claim to the Peloponnesus as a whole. And his his heirs down the generations had made multiple attempts to make good on that claim and they only succeed when they are leading these Lacedaemonians into the Peloponnesus. And then they move into the richest part of the Peloponnesus in terms of good land, which would be Laconia. They are Dorians, they say, and the Mycenaeans are Dorians too and came at the same time. And the Argives are Dorians too and came in the same invasion. So these are three peoples who have a common legend. I'm inclined to think there's probably something to the legend. These things tend not to be made up out of whole cloth. They tend to be, there tends to be a kernel of truth and around that kernel of truth that gets charted up in, in a variety of ways. We know that there is a new people in, we know this from archaeology in Lacedaemon somewhere around the, the 10th century. And around sometime in the 8th century BC, we can begin to see evidence of uh, farming settlements. These people may have have invaded and they may have brought flocks with them. That may have been the way they operated. There's much in their mythology that would suggest a connection with transhumans. That is to say, with conducting flocks from uh, from the highlands uh, where they would be in the summer down to the lowlands in the winter. We can't be sure about any of this. Right. But how, how, so how soon did we start seeing a political organization that started, you could say that was, okay, this is starting to be, look like something like Sparta. Uh, the first, the, 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 the evidence would suggest by about 750 you're beginning to see something more than bands led by chieftains. And you're beginning to see a settling down and a turn towards agriculture. And there appear to be five villages, and there's four in in one place, and then there's a fifth village uh, a bit to the south that seems to have been incorporated into Lacedaemon. There's clearly a population in Laconia, which is where they first go, before they get there. And we have legends about that. You can see it in Homer's Odyssey and the account of Telemachus's voyage from initially from Ithaca to Pylos in Messenia and then on to Lacedaemon where he meets Menelaus and Helen. And recently, and I mean in the last five, six years, they've discovered a Mycenaean palace in southern Laconia, not where Sparta is, but south of where Sparta is. 
And that may well be the palace that Telemachus is supposed to have visited. There is a kind of overrunning by the Lacedaemonians of Laconia. And whatever population is there when they arrive, much of it gets turned into helots, subjects. Yeah, well, let's talk about the helots. Yeah, there, there are two kinds of helots. There are helots in Laconia. Sometimes they're called by the Spartans the old helots, the old helots. They are probably Achaean in origin. You've, you've got to think about the, the population that existed under Menelaus and Helen. Then there are the helots of Messenia. Sometime towards the end of the 8th century, and our, our dates become a little more solid when you get towards the end of the 8th century, say 720, 715, the Spartans cross Mount Taygetos, which is a range of mountains that run north and south between Laconia in the east and Messenia in the west. They cross those mountains and they conquer the river valley in Messenia, the river valley, the valley of the Pamisos, which is even richer than, than the river valley in Laconia where they live. And they subject the people of Messenia, who are Dorians like the Spartans. And they then draw income, mainly in, in the form of agricultural products from Messenia. And it's at this point that the Spartans begin, uh, we have some reason to think, to develop a way of life based on leisure and on leisure devoted to gymnastics and to sports. And of course, to war. So, so the Helots, I mean, people often think of them as slaves. Were they slaves, like similar how other Greek city-states practice slavery? Or was it different? No, they're not slaves in the traditional sense. They're not chattel. They can't be sold. They're not owned by a particular Spartan individual. They are subject to Sparta as a community and in a sense are owned by Sparta as a community, but they, they don't operate for the most part in the households of individual Spartans. They operate on farms from which they are required to provide a kind of competence for individual Spartans. So there's an allotment of land assigned to each individual Spartan more or less at birth probably takes possession of that land when he completes the agoge and becomes an adult. And then he receives from that land a portion of the crop. So these helots are like sharecroppers, but they're also like serfs because they're bound to the land. And they're something like slaves because they, they really have very limited rights. Once a year, the Spartan ephors declare war on the helots and it's 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 an opportunity to kill a helot if you want to kill a helot so it, it's an unenviable status to say the least but it's not like slaves so for example if you go to athens they have loads and loads of slaves most of these slaves are barbarians and they are owned by individual athenians and they don't have families they're not settled on land that they have some sort of claim to. The helot has a claim to the share 
to a share of the crop that he produces from the land that he works. So it's, it's a, it's a more complex status in some ways better off than slaves are because these helots have families and they have some sort of claim to a share of the crop. In other ways, uh, which have to do with the brutality of the Spartans, maybe they're worse off than slaves. And, but another interesting thing about the helots is that they outnumbered the Spartans considerably. I think it was that one number was estimated seven to one. The information we are provided by Herodotus suggests a ratio of seven to one. There are modern scholars who think that's impossible on, on the basis of sort of social science analysis of the land and how many people it will support and so forth. Uh, I'm skeptical of such analyses. So I mean, how did, but how did the, I mean, okay, whatever the number was, how did the Spartans keep these guys in control? So there's the, the annual killing. I mean, how else did the helots outnumbering them influence how they organized themselves or organized their culture? Probably, and we don't have evidence for this, but it's it's hard to believe that the Spartans didn't have garrisons in Messenia. And it's hard to believe that they didn't have um, magistrates that oversaw the helots in particular areas. But the main, the main thing that they used to keep the helots down was terror. And it worked in two ways. One, this annual declaration of war. And second, they had a way of training 18-year-olds. You, you complete the agoge, which is the upbringing, the kind of formation that runs from about seven, age seven to about 18, and, and looks like a, a rather more serious version of the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts and the Explorers. And they then spend a year in which they are given a dagger and they, they hide out and they have to steal their food. And my guess is that a lot of this takes place in Messenia, and the food is stolen from helots, and they do it by night. And one of the reasons that they, that, that they may have this institution of the Krypteia is there are mountainous areas in Messenia in particular, and it's extremely difficult to police mountainous areas. So if you look at the Persian Empire, for example, there are certain mountainous areas that sometimes the Persian king has to travel through, and he doesn't really control those mountainous areas. There are wild tribes that control them, and he has to pay a kind of penalty for passing through. And the reason is it's it's not worth the effort and the expense of putting soldiers into those mountains and keeping them there to to police those mountains. And there's a long history in the Balkans and elsewhere in the world where there are mountainous areas of bandits and of bandit gangs that maintain control in these wilder areas. One way to counteract that possibility within Messenia is you send out young Spartans with daggers and their task is not to bring back scalps in the little, literal sense but their their task is to kill these helots, runaways. So you mentioned the agoge, which started at age seven. Like, so walk us through. So you said it's like an extreme form of Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. So what was it like? You're, you're seven years old. What happens when you turn seven if you're a boy? Okay, you leave your mother and you leave your father. Now, your connection with your father is 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 not that strong because he's he doesn't really live at home. He visits 
he he lives in the Sicilia with his uh, fellows in a kind of squad and takes his meals there and spends the night there most of the time. May slip off to visit his wife from time to time. But you take the boy away from his mother and you take him into a kind of camping arrangement with other boys his age. And you teach him the traditions of Sparta, but you put him through exercises all the time. And you teach him poetry. There's a kind of, there are choirs that, of, of Spartan boys. Uh, music is, is central to Spartan life. And as you move from seven to 12, there are kind of boundaries in this. And then on to 17 and 18, there, there are, you rise through age, you're a member of an age class. And as you get older, they, they do different things with you in the way of the games that you play, in the ways of the ordeals that you go through. So it, it gets more and more intense as time goes on and more and more physically demanding. You're being prepared for full citizenship and full citizenship involves military service, but you're also being prepared um, for being cunning and being able to operate on your own. One of the striking features uh, about Sparta in, say, the 5th century is you, the, the Spartans can send one Spartan to Syracuse to help the Syracusans against the Athenians, and that can be decisive. A single Spartan providing leadership and guidance can so hearten the Syracusans that they outwit the Athenians and defeat them. Similarly, you can send Brasidas with a group of uh, emancipated helots and a mercenary army, no Sp other Spartiates, up into northern Greece towards Amphipolis and Thrace, and he can wreak havoc because the kind of education that he has received makes him self-reliant to a degree that is astonishing for the other Greeks. So a single Spartan can tip the balance. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Well, okay, so you mentioned a few things there that I like to unpack. So you mentioned part of the Agogi training was poetry, singing songs, which is interesting because I think a lot of times when people think Spartans, they think, oh, they had no culture, they didn't have an appreciation for art, but... 
right there that's they have an appreciation for art. Yes, yes. And actually, at least in the early days, the art that is produced within Laconia, and I'm thinking of pottery, is quite beautiful. There, there seems to be a turning away from that later. But poetry is absolutely central to their lives. And the poetry is focused on war, on the accomplishments of individual Spartans in particular situations. Uh, we have snatches of it from a poet called Tertius, who's a, a contemporary. Uh, he, he's sort of two generations after the original conquest of Messenia, at a time when Messenia rebelled and the Spartans are reconquering it. And his poetry mostly has to do with that reconquest. But it's very impressive, and they memorize it. They memorize large swaths of poetry. Poetry may be more central to Spartan life than it is to Athenian life. Yeah, that's interesting. That's counterintuitive. We think that the Athenians are more cultured, and they would put an emphasis on, on that. Yeah, it's a different kind of culture focused on um, comedy and tragedy, which you don't have in Sparta. Sparta, what you've got is lyric poetry. And this is kind of like ballads of great deeds. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, okay, that's the other question. I mean, it's like, why? Like, why? So, the Spartans were able to live this life of leisure thanks to the, the, the helots. Why did they decide we're just going to spend all that leisure time that we have, freed up time to become the best warriors possible? Where, you know, another city state, say like Athens, they'd be like, well, uh, when you have lots of leisure, that allows you to do philosophy. Um, why didn't, why did the, the Spartans go that way? Well, you got to be a little careful about this claim about Athens and philosophy. Okay. Uh, the, the, the people who did philosophy were considered uh, freaks. They were marginal in character. It's not an accident that Socrates was executed. The, the ordinary Athenian, his focus would be more on tragedy and comedy than on philosophy. Philosophy really is marginal. It's very important to us. It's the thing about Athens that may be the most important to us. But it's not so terribly important to 5th century Athenians, at least to the common people. Now, the well-to-do, the hoity-toity, the, the, the men of great aristocratic families, they dabbled in it. So what you have to, when you think about Sparta, you have to think about it as a kind of combination of a military camp and maybe a baseball camp where you're working out before the season begins. And you have to think about the Spartans as people who love sports. They love sports. They love horse races. They love hunting. In other words, it is not altogether grim. They do not eat meals that you and I would enjoy. And in fact, they're, they're notorious for the sort of simplicity of their fare. But when you move into the sphere of sports, it's a kind of exciting life that they lead. And it's a life of leisure that, that the upper classes elsewhere in Greece envy the Spartans for. Um, and that's another thing we have trouble with. We admire Athens, but the Greeks generally admired Sparta much more than Athens. What, what did they admire about it? They just admired their pursuit of excellence? and They admired their accomplishments on the battlefield. So when Pericles, in the funeral oration that Thucydides lays out, that wants to make the case for Athens, the foil is always Sparta. And the deciding factor 
you know, the thing that decides that Athens is superior to Sparta is Athens wins on the battlefield. You've got to, that's the standard, and it's the accepted standard even in Athens. So the, the Spartan success on the battlefield is envied. Their leisure is envied. That's, that's what everyone would like to have, not to have to work. Their use of that leisure for horse racing, for hunting, that, that is also admired. And the, the role of music in their lives, that is also admired. The people in Greece who are most critical of the Spartans are people like Plato and Aristotle, who intimate that the Spartans raise their children like beasts. But if you look at, at the, at the well-to-do throughout Greece, throughout, you know, Thassos and, and Amphipolis and so forth, what they admire is, is this way of life, uh, which of course is based upon a very large subject population. No one in Greece feels any shame about enslaving other human beings. That's another thing we have trouble getting our minds around. It's it's just an accepted institution. Aristotle, in his politics, raises the question whether or not a lot of the people who are in practice enslaved are worthy to be free men, with the implication that perhaps a lot of the people who are free men are worthy to be enslaved. So he sets another kind of standard, but you've got to keep in mind the philosophers are on the margins here. The mainstream of people are proud of their domination of other peoples. I think you mentioned that the other Greeks, like sort of upper class Greeks and other city states admire the Spartans. Didn't some of them actually send their kids to the Spartan agogi? Well, yes, Xenophon did, for example, an Athenian. There wasn't a whole lot of that, and it may not have happened in the 5th century. It certainly happens in the 4th century, because we begin hearing about it in the 4th century. And the Spartans open up a bit in the 4th century, because after the Peloponnesian War, which they win, they establish an empire throughout Greece, more or less in imitation of the empire that the Athenians had had. And in establishing an empire, they have to they have to open themselves up to the larger world. And that that is consistent with bringing people to Sparta and putting them through the Spartan agoge. One consequence of this, by the way, is our best information about Sparta comes in the fourth century when they're forced to open up in this way in the writings of Xenophon, Plato, and Aristotle. So we mentioned the Goge. That's what, something that the kids went through is their education. What happened after that? You mentioned they kind of got assigned to a squad, basically. Well, in between comes the Krypteia, the sort of testing time, where as individuals, they're given uh, a dagger and they're sent out to fend into the wilds to fend for themselves. So that's a rite of passage. And at the end of this rite of passage, they can be elected to a particular Sicidia, which is a men's dining club slash military squad. It is one of the elements within the Spartan army. So if you were to fight in the Spartan army, you will fight alongside or quite near in the battle line, the members of your Sicidia. And until you're 45, at least that's what I think. There are others who think that it, it, there's an earlier date on this. You take your meals in the Sicidia, 
with your fellows who have elected you to membership in it, and one of them doesn't want you, they can blackball you. So it's it's like certain fraternities. And second, you spend the night with your squad. So Sparta is like an encampment, a military encampment. There are houses for the women and the children. The men have something to do with those houses, but they tend to spend their nights with the military squad. So in an emergency, a king can have an instrument called the Salpinx blown, and they can rise up. They're already in their military units. They can rise up, form up into a battle line and fight. What what do they do in these clubs? They just like, I mean, they just talk and joke. What do they do in these dining clubs? Telling stories, telling jokes. It it is it is this that gives rise to their their brevity. In other words, there's there's a certain style. It's a little bit like Twitter. You you've got to get everything into a certain number of words. So quips are something that they're very proud of, and it's a kind of, of literary style. So you'll you'll say something to a Spartan, and he'll have a zinging comeback. You know, not 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 unlike a uh, Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers movie. I, I can think of one where a woman says to Ginger Rogers, "You're not as dumb as you look," and she says, "I wish I could say the same <laughs> for you." That's the kind of comeback that a Spartan would have. Did so? The, you said the Spartans every now and then went and saw their families. When did they go see their families? They may have visited them in the daytime. You know, in between the other things that they're doing. There there are stories about them slipping off at night to visit their wives, uh, which is how procreation takes place. Interesting. So it sounds like uh, the life of a Spartan, it was very public. You didn't really have much of a private life. Like everything, you did everything with other people. There really wasn't much going on that you had for yourself. No, there's not much. After 45, maybe there's a little more if you live that long. And of course, not everybody lives that long. The likelihood is that when you get to be 45, you're in the grave, but not always. And then they live at home. But there's another side to it. This, this attack on privacy, pulling young people into the public sphere at age of 70, a seven when they leave their mothers and the, the keeping of, of, of the men in the public sphere through the Sicidia until they're 45, it may provoke a reaction. One of the interesting things is that we have the sayings of the Spartan women. You'd think the Spartan women would be inconsequential, and yet we know much more about Spartan women than we know about Athenian women. It could be that if you take a boy away from his mother at the age of seven, you intensify the, the relationship between the boy and the mother by depriving him of the close contact. And a lot of the sayings of the Spartan women are sayings of Spartan women to their sons. You know, with come back with your shield or on it, meaning come back with your shield, not having thrown it away as a coward does, or on it as a dead man. Those are the choices. Think of having a mother like that. Uh, so, it also, it could be that the relations between uh, Spartan men and their wives are quite intense because they're kept apart the way they're kept apart. And so you cherish the time together much more. 
very hard to tell. But, you know, when you have a society that is organized in such a way that it emphasizes the public, you may get a kind of natural human reaction that emphasizes the private. And I mention this because one of the other things that were told about the Spartans by Plato in particular is their houses are very simple on the outside, but they're very luxurious on the inside. Another thing we're told, and it seems almost certainly to be true, is the Spartans are notoriously open to bribery. In other words, there, 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 there is a kind of suppressed private concern for wealth. And the suppression intensifies it rather than eliminating it. Yeah, I mean, that, so yeah, the, the Spartans also were famous for their sumptuary laws where I mean, they couldn't even own money publicly. Right. They use these big metal. But apparently in the houses, there's money buried. Right. So, that's, yeah, that's that's interesting. As you said, when you suppress it, when you say, oh, we do not we do not do this for money, we do everything for glory, if you suppress that desire for wealth, then people privately are going to go crazy with wealth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, if you have separate schools for boys and girls, their interest in one another is intensified, not reduced. So we haven't talked about Sparta's government. Uh, tell us about that. How is it unique from other Greek city-states? Yeah, Sparta's the first constant has the first sort of institutional structure that we know of that involves what you might call a distribution of powers and a kind of checking and balancing. So in the beginning, uh, the, the dominant figures at Sparta are the two kings. There are two kings, two different families, both tracing their ancestry back to Heracles, purportedly at some time very early in Spartan history, a, a king had twin sons, and the kingship was divided between them. And so you have the Europonted house and you have the Aegead house. And Sparta almost certainly begins as two bands of raiders led by chieftains, each of whom claims to be of Heraclid derivation. Around 750, there appears to have been a kind of rebellion by the notables within Sparta. And what you get out of that is the establishment of a council of elders. It's called the Gerousia, and, and Gerousia has the same root as geriatric or gerontology. It refers to old people. Uh, in the period where we know a lot about it, you have to be 60 years old to be eligible for election to the Gerousia. And it's drawn from certain families in that period, which suggests that there is a time in which a balance is established between a Spartan aristocracy, an aristocracy within the Spartan community, and the two kings. Later, and, and there's an office that is used to check the king that is called the Ephraim. Uh, the Ephoroi, they are called, and there are five of them, perhaps one to each of the constituent villages of Sparta, but maybe not that way in the beginning. And in fact, Maybe there are only three in the beginning representing the three ancestral tribes of the Dorians. There, there's, there's some indication there are Spartan colonies that only have three ephors, which suggests that very early on there were only three. And that suggests that they, that they are uh, drawn from the well-born within these three tribes, these three Dorian tribes. 
But by the middle of the seventh century, the, there, there seemed to be five efforts, which would fit the five constituent villages. And there appears to have been a kind of democratic reform, one that left intact the Garcia, changing nothing there, left intact the kingship, the two families, but took the effort and democratized it. And there's reason to think this takes place in the seventh century in connection with a military reform that takes place in which you have the emergence of the hoplite phalanx. This is built on a particular piece of equipment called the aspis and sometimes called the hoplon, which is carried by a hoplite. And what it is, is it's a large circular shield of the sort that people see on Greek vases, for example. And at the center of the shield is a hook. You put your left arm through that hook and you carry the weight on the left arm based on that hook and a hook on the right rim of the shield. So you, you have your arm through the hook in the middle of the shield and you grasp the, the hook uh, on, the, on the right side of the shield. And if you think about this, this is a shield that will cover your left side, but not your right side. And so it's a shield that's only good in a phalanx where the man next to you in the battle line holds a shield that covers your right side and his uh, left side. And the shield would be disadvantageous in ordinary fighting because it leaves your right side uncovered. And, and it's very hard to make use of that shield to cover the right side. So it seems to be designed for a particular military formation. And that's the hoplite phalanx. Well, the strength of the hoplite phalanx depends to a very great degree. It's an infantry phalanx. It depends to a very great degree on the number of people in it. So what you want to do if you're forming a hoplite army is to maximize the number of people in the battle line, in the battle line of the, of the phalanx. And, you, and it's eight men deep in the standard battle line. So if somebody gets killed, somebody else shoves in to replace them in the position that they hold. And here's the virtue of the hoplite phalanx. A, a, a uh, cavalry charge can't affect it because the horses will not go through a shield wall. They will rear, they will pull back. They, they, you can't get a horse to do what human beings sometimes do, bang their head against a wall. A horse that is uh, blind, a horse that is mad with uh, pain might plow into a phalanx. But the other horses, they're going to veer away from it. So you form this shield wall and you're pretty much impervious to cavalry except on your flanks. And of course, if they come at you from behind. And then the battle is actually like a rugby scrum with shoving and pushing and, and something you don't get in a rug, rugby scrum, at least ordinarily stabbing and, and, and killing. And you need manpower for this to make this thing work. Whereas the old manner of fighting suggested in Homer may involve cavalry that at certain points dismount. Well, horses are very expensive. It's like owning a Porsche. So the, the, the cavalry warfare is the warfare of the wealthy in all human periods. 
infantry warfare, especially the kind that you see with the hoplite phalanx, is is the um, is the warfare carried on by ordinary men, and quite naturally, if you're going to fight for your country, you're going to want to have a say in the decisions of whether to go to war or not. So there appears to be at Sparta a constitutional change that takes place 650, somewhere around that time. Then the whole thing is pretty much set. And so what you have is a monarchical element with the two kings, an aristocratic element with the garrisia elected from among certain families, and a democratic element with efforts who seem to be, at least according to Plato, chosen by some sort of method that has kinship with a lottery to represent the common people. And the final element in it is there is an assembly. And in that assembly, it's one man, one vote. So it's a mixed regime and different elements in it have different powers. So for example, once a month, the kings get together, the two kings with the five efforts, and the kings swear they'll uphold the laws. And the efforts swear that they will uphold the power of the kings as long as they uphold the laws. And there's a threat in that. And we know that in the fifth century, I know of only three kings in the fifth century who are not known to have been put on trial by the efforts on a capital charge. So there's, there's, there's a lot of infighting that goes on within the Spartan constitution, and it seems to turn on the two kings. Uh, and the evidence we have mainly from the fourth century suggests that each king has his adherence. It's almost as if you have a, a, a two-party system one representing the Europontid line and the other representing the Aegid line. And the trial, if a king is tried, takes place between, before a court made up of the Ephors and the Garrisia. There are 28 members of the Garrisia plus the two kings and their five Ephors. So the Garrisia plays a crucial role at that point. And when the assembly meets, it's the Garrisia working as a probiotic council that sets the agenda for the assembly. So it's a very complicated political system. And its function seems to be to prevent anything from happening unless there's consensus and to produce consensus. And the agoge and the Spartan way of life is also aimed at producing consensus. There should not be at Sparta any kind of competition for wealth because everyone is provided for with an allotment uh, farmed by helots, and the city provides them with that. So the kind of competition that comes from a difference of economic interest would be eliminated. The kind of competition that might come from religious interests is eliminated because they all share a common religion. It is a religious community. The kind of competition that comes from a difference of opinions is restricted because they receive a kind of indoctrination during the agoge from age seven to 18. And they live in, an, in a highly communal setting because of, of the Sicidia. 
So what competition is left? Well, the rivalry for honor and for glory, and of course, the rivalry between the two royal houses. I'm curious, during all this, uh, these reformations that happened to establish these these checks on different groups. Did Lycurgus, was he a real person? Did he play a role? Was that, or is that just sort of a myth that was invented? Well, again, I don't think anything is, is very likely to be completely invented, but there may be accretions. By the fifth century, if you asked a Spartan, what did their form of government come from and their way of life? They would say Lycurgus did everything. But we have other evidence suggesting that the kingship goes way, way back, that the Gerasia and perhaps three ephors go back to about 750. And there was a list of ephors, of, of, the, of the lead ephor, of the eponymous ephor, after whom the year was named. They don't give numbers to years. They name them after the eponymous ephor. goes back to about 753. That suggests the change. At some point, there clearly was a change from three efforts to five efforts, and that seems to come with hoplite warfare. So who was Lycurgus? The most likely answer is he is the figure, a member of the royal family, of one of the two royal families, but not in line to be a king, who led the aristocratic opposition that produced the Gerasia. In other words, if you, if you, if you look at the, at what we're told about him, clearly there are accretions. That is to say, things are attributed to him that couldn't have been done by one person because they're done at radically different times. And the legendary character of him, the fact that he's kind of lost in legend, suggests that he lived early. And the likely time is about 753. We are told a story in Plutarch, which is almost certainly derivative from Aristotle's constitution of the Lacedaemonians, that points to that early period and to his connection with setting up the Gerousia. And that makes perfect sense. And the later changes with regard to the effort, there are sources that attribute those to two Spartan kings acting in cooperation with one another, a, a Europontid and an Aegead. And we can date those Spartan kings in a rough and ready way to the first half of the seventh century. So Sparta had a very, you know, pretty sophisticated political regime set up. How long did it last? Well, it d- depends on, 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 on what you mean by lasting. Right. The, the, the Spartans are rather successful from about 750 down to 320, uh, 362, excuse me, BC, and actually a little before that, say 371 BC. And the foundation that emerges that allows them to be such a force is their conquest of Messenia. So they have all this land and they have all of these laborers, which allows them to articulate their way of life and to be a military power. You deprive them of Messenia, which is what the Thebans under Epaminondas did in the second quarter of the fourth century BC. You deprive them of Messenia, and in the process, you are undermining their capacity to put an army of any size into the field. And they never really come back after 371. If you mean by their way of life, in Laconia, 
and as a kind of backwater, something like Disneyland, it survives into the later Roman Empire. So there's a strong tradition there. There are helots in Laconia, and there are a small number of Spartiates, many, many smaller than there had been in the 5th century. And they continue to lead a life of leisure dedicated to hunting and gymnastics and so forth. But they're completely inconsequential. And one of the reasons that that Sparta, the, the, the Sparta of the Hellenistic period and the Roman period, is not destroyed is why bother? They're inconsequential. It's a kind of relic of an earlier age. But the real thing is over when Epaminondas frees Messenia, and it is confirmed at the Battle of Mantinea in 362 when the Spartans try to make a comeback, and they fight the battle to, um, uh, to a stalemate. So nothing changes. Messenia remains independent. Arcadia, which had, uh, is to the north of Sparta, had been organized into a league by Epaminondas and a city established to the northwest of Sparta, sort of between, in an area to the north of Sparta and Messenia, between Sparta and Messenia. In other words, to the north of Mount Taygetos, uh, at a place called Megalopolis, the big city. That remains too. So it's pretty much done for the Spartans in 371, and their attempt at a comeback in 362 fails. So it was about a 400-year run? Yeah, which is pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, We haven't made it 400 years yet. We haven't made it yet. No, we've got got quite a while to get to that point. So, I mean, throughout this conversation, you've been talking about, and I've kind of slipped into it too, where we praise and we feel like we have the most in common with Athens. But what's interesting and you mentioned this in your book, is that, you know, Sparta figures much more prominently in our popular culture. Like I said at the beginning, we don't make movies or write books about Athens, really. Not so very many. Not so very many. Well, I mean, and here's the, and even if when we do, they're not that popular compared to the ones about Spartan. Like, so like Stephen Pressfield um, has written all those fictional accounts of Athens and, and Sparta. He did one about the Battle of Thermopylae with the Gates of Fire and the 300. And that's got over 1,500 views on Amazon. And then he has a novel uh, that centers on Athens. And that only has, it's Tides of War, that only has 182 reviews. Like, what do you think, we feel like we have more in common with Athens, but we actually, when we make our choices about what we want to watch or read, it's about Sparta. Well, or, or what we want to name our football teams after. Right, yeah. yeah. We, we, There's very you know, few, like, I'm in Michigan here, and, and uh, Michigan State has the Spartans. Uh, and I, I wish that they would invite me to give a lecture during halftime at a Michigan State game about the real Spartans, but they haven't done that yet. I haven't even been invited to give a talk on Sparta at, at, at the university proper yet, Someday it may come. Someone may think, gosh, we really ought to do this. But the, you know, the it's Thermopylae that, that gives the Spartans their, their sort of cultural leverage. You have 300 men who fight to the death against an invading Persian army, knowing perfectly well that they're going to die. And this impressed the Greeks. It actually impressed the Spartans back home a lot. It set a standard for them that it was hard to live up to, and it impressed the Greeks enormously. The Athenian victory at Salamis was extremely important, but it didn't impress the Greeks as much as the Spartans' willingness to die at Thermopylae in, in the way they did, and their relative success 
in stopping the whole Persian army at a choke point, you know, until Xerxes sends 10,000 Persians around the mountain to get behind the Spartans. That story is very, very powerful. So, you know, if you look at the public schools in Britain, they weren't modeled on Athens. They were modeled on Sparta. If you think about the United States Marines, they're not modeled on Athens. They're, they're modeled on Sparta. So it's, uh, it, it's odd. Within a bourgeois society, uh, organized around commerce, around sort of global trade and so forth, uh, that more nearly resembles Athens, we still don't think first of Athens. The scholars do. The literature on Athens is probably a thousand times as great as the literature on Sparta, the secondary literature. And until I started writing these books on Sparta, no one had ever written more than one volume on Sparta. It was sort of uh, an anthropological oddity from the perspective of the scholarly world. And so people would write a single volume sort of describing Spartan institutions and Spartan practices. But to actually look at their history, and to to study the the situations they find themselves in and how they cope, there's very little on that. Everything is Athenocentric. But in the popular world, Sparta's more of a focus than Athens or even Rome, really. You're working on a series of books about Sparta. There's the Spartan regime, and then there's the grand strategy of classical Sparta. Are you is there any more coming out in this series? Yes. In next September. Yale University Press will publish the Sparta's first Attic War, the grand strategy of classical Sparta, 478 to 446 BC. That book is in press now. It's been copy edited. It is about to be sent into production, which means they'll, they'll produce uh, page proofs. There is a book coming after that. It has been accepted for publication by Yale. It is called Sparta's Second Attic War. The Grand Strategy of Classical Sparta, 446 to 418 BC. So the the first of these two volumes is about what scholars have called the the First Peloponnesian War, writing from an Athenian perspective. It's the Peloponnesian War, but which at the time was called by people in the Peloponnesus the First Attic War. And then the the second volume is about what uh, scholars call the Great Peloponnesian War, Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, and it's about the the first fourteen years of that war and the onset of that war, which was called Sparta's Second Attic War. So I'm following, I, I'm trying to look at this this world through Spartan eyes, and that'll come out in September 2020. Okay, well, Paul, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. My guest today was historian Paul Ray. He is now working on a series of books about ancient Sparta. You can find two of them right now, The Spartan Regime and The Grand Strategy of Classical Sparta on Amazon. Just look up Paul Ray. That's R-A-H-E. And he's got a few more coming out in this series, so be on the lookout for that. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Sparta, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.